0: resonates with the truth that He is our God, he's our father, he loves us, he cares about us. If we believe in him and we come to the cross and we confess our sins, then he promises to fill our life with righteousness, justifies us, gives us right standing. We're no longer condemned. He says, come into the family. I delight in you. I love you. I care about you. Let's pursue life together. And I promise you that when difficulties come, I will be there far deeper and more significant than you can any find in the world. He loves you. So I guess my challenge this week for you is, is pretty simple. And it, and it is a challenge based on some beautiful truth. What is it that we pursue? What is it we really pursue? And is what we're pursuing actually feeding into our value and belief in Christ? So those that may feel like Man, this seems good in theory, but in practice, I would ask you to consider what your practices are. Next week, we get into the, uh, what do those practices look like, sanctification. Because all this that we've talked about, and I'm going to finish with this as we come to communion, these two things... And conversion and choice and, and being chosen and everything else above it, these two things are all God. This is God's initiation, God's plan, God's change. It's beautiful. This is a combination of us and God. Sanctification. Th- this is where our practice comes in. So this week, I want you to consider what are your practices? What are you pursuing? And in communion this morning, as uh, we're going to do some worship in uh, in just a second, as we come to communion, this this is what I'd like us to do. I'm going to uh, allow Sarah and the team to lead us, and I'm going to read some scripture. The, the communion so it's the R section. If you want to hear those sermons, go online to WillowParkChurch.com, and you can download those sermons. And uh, we video them and we record them. And there are study packs available as well for you to download that look like that off the website as well. So today, we're going to jump into the E, the empowered life. And for the next four weeks, we're going to break apart what does this life practically look like for you and me, whether you're a Christian or whether you're just on an exploration, on a journey and thinking this through. What does real life actually look like? I remember when I was at school, being desperate to get out of school, out of high school and to university and, and, and and get on with my life. I remember being so busy taking my O levels and A levels and and like it was just so much work. I just was like, when I get to university, they just seem to have so much time on their hands. They go to school twice a week and, you know, they sit around and then I got into university and I was like, oh my goodness, this is so busy. This is crazy. It's not just sitting around, you know, like at the time, drinking beer and and just talking about how the world should be different, but not really willing to do anything about it. You know, that's what I was thinking student life was going to be like, but it was actually really busy. I was desperate to leave to get a job so I could have more time on my hands. And then when I get into the working world and I became a teacher and then I kind of progressed in teaching and we started having children and and then, you know, somehow... You end up with four, you know, I I still need to work that one out, how that happened, make sure that, uh, praise God for it, but I I was like, it was like, it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant, when they're little, I look at little ones now, I just met a whole horde of them, a tribe of little ones, like all this big, and they're all girls, and they've kind of got this look in their eye, that's like, oh, I hope the parents know what they're doing, because they're so beautiful, and they're full of energy, and I remember it's hard work, But now that I've got young adults in that family and I'm in my household and we've got a little guy, 11-year-old, it's different hard work. You know, I remember going from practice to practice to getting up early so they could do this and going there and it's just like, man, life is so busy while trying to pastor and and, and do all the other things. And then we do this beautiful thing as human beings. We do this, oh, you think you're busy? (laughs) Let me tell you about my life. You know, we have that instant judgment, don't we? You don't know what business... Let's be honest, Glenn. Half an hour a week, 45 minutes is what you work. You're doing it right now, and then you go home and nap for the rest of the week. We all know that's the truth. See, those of you that are laughing, know maybe that's not really what pastoring is about. It's, uh, I, I proved it a year and a half ago when I burned out. It's not, it's not like that. But we also, we all, life is crazy. There's always... An activity we have to get to. And as parents, we want our kids involved in volleyball or soccer or rugby or basketball or whatever it might be. And and life just fills up. And this is what I find is a constant pull. The pull is this. Is that Jesus and Christianity start getting pushed to the edge of our life. And it becomes an activity Jesus and Christianity, if we're not careful as Christians, become an activity alongside soccer, volleyball, workplace, business life, hobbies, activities, whatever it might be. We kind of slot him alongside and go, yeah, that's my Jesus time. And I'm not standing here in any kind of judgment because I understand that is a natural proclivity for every one of us that Jesus just gets pushed to the edge, there's always an activity we have to get to. And if we're not careful, Christianity and Jesus just becomes one of those activities that we feel we have to get to. And then if we don't get to Jesus, we don't get to church, we don't get to our community group, or we don't get to something that we know is important, then we get guilty and feel shameful. And then after a few weeks, we don't actually want to go back because everybody's like, oh, we haven't seen you for a few weeks. Are you still a Christian? It's the pull. Maybe better, I should maybe put the push. It's just a natural tendency we have as, Christian, as Christians. And then this is what happens. When we start living our life where Jesus just becomes an activity, people notice. And I believe that's part of the reason, not all the reason, but part of the reason why people have such a hard time with Christians because generally it's very, very quiet and, kind of, and, and pushed down in general life apart from some of the crazies. The crazy ones, the crazy Christians, and I'm not even being critical of them, because part of me kind of admires, even though their theology might be a bit screwy, they're very vocal, and that's what people think Christianity is all about, whereas you and I, not so crazy, I hope, actually sometimes we just push Jesus to the edge so much, where Jesus actually isn't shown, the real Jesus isn't actually shown. What real Christianity is like, that In the darkest times, this is what Christianity is actually like. In the good times, this is what Christianity is actually like because Christianity is so much more than just an activity. In John chapter 29 and verse 31, this is one of my favorite verses and I have quoted this so often in this church. It says, but these things, that's the Bible, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Bible says, you believe in Jesus, you become a Christian. That's how it works. You have belief, it becomes Christianity, you believe in what he's done on the cross for you, you repent, the confession, that's the last two weeks we looked at, then you become a Christian, but it doesn't stop there, the son of God, and that by believing you may have, everyone, life, that was very exuberant, thank you, in his name, let's try again, we may have life, thank you, I'm not the only one who gets to yell on a Sunday morning, See, belief in Jesus should radically transform our lives. Radically transform our lives. In order for that to be true for us all, we need to understand and we need to appreciate and we need to live out certain truths. We need to understand good theology and then we need to stand on that good theology and say, this is how it practically affects my life. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at some of this theology and we're going to look at two beautiful Bible truths today and then next week, we're going to look at the third. If we can understand these three Bible truths, then this, uh, this Jesus being pushed to the edge, this activity Jesus, doesn't, doesn't happen. It actually gets... He gets the foundation of who we are. We have life in his name, that everything that we do, everything we say, everything we think, every decision, how we parent, how we run our businesses, everything is based on the foundation of how we understand these three Bible truths. If we do not understand and appreciate these three Bible truths, that I'm going to write in a second, then Jesus starts getting pushed to the edge. The first one is justification. And the second one, and we're going to look at these today, is adoption. The third one we're going to look at next week is sanctification. Some of you may have been in church a long time, and again, no judgment, and may be going, I'm not sure what these three things mean. So it's my prayer today that these two will become so ingrained in who we are that it will It will will encourage us and, and champion us so we can actually live life with Christ in the center in all that we do. So number one, we are justified. As a Christian, we are justified. The judgment has been passed. In Romans 5 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justification or justified is a legal term. Remember last week we talked about there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand condemned outside of Jesus. When you believe in Jesus and he floods into your life and he transforms your life, your legal standing changes. You are justified. Last week we talked about how our culture has no problem with God being a God of love but has significant issue with God being holy. See a God of love means he doesn't judge me, my sin is okay, I'm better than that person, God gets me, he's going to let me in, it's all going to be fine because how can God be a God of love if he sends people to hell? The challenge is, is, the Bible actually also talks about God being holy. And we went into this last week. God's holiness means that He has to judge the wrongdoings in our lives. We love, love seeing bad guys come to justice. Let's flick the TV on for a little while, and it is crammed full of TV shows about justice. We love it. You know, one of my favorites is Sherlock Holmes. Love Sherlock Holmes. I we were Sarah and I were talking about um, a TV detective we used to watch when we were when we were younger. Columbo. I loved Columbo. I loved the, like this this detective going after the bad guy, bringing justice. And then in in Britain there was this TV show that was on like three times a week called The Bill. How many of the Brits remember The Bill? Yes, the bill was just like this chaotic British police drama. And it was great. It was chasing bad guys. And when I was 18, I, became, I, I started working in a, in a clothing store called Burton's, which is like American apparel type store. And my job, or part of my job, was to keep a close eye on, on, on shoplifters. Now, so that, when they told me that, keep an eye out for shoplifters, what became my number one role in my mind? I'm going to catch Everybody. Everybody was a shoplifter in my mind. Even the, like, the dearest, wonderful, lovely, elderly lady coming shoplifter. i got my eye on you, lady. Because I didn't trust anyone. And working in real, I'm sorry for those who are watching on real, potentially everyone could have been a shoplifter. It's really true. I used to chase and catch shoplifters. I'm so glad it was pre um, uh, court, what's the word, lie, you know, where I could be liable. I used to catch people all the time. I remember catching one guy, he was in the change room, he'd been in there ages, and I went in and I stood and I was listening. I was maybe about, I worked all the way through university there about four years. I was maybe 19, 20 years old. And I remember thinking, he's been in there a long time. So I remember standing and I was listening. There was loads of shuffling going on inside the changing room. And so I pulled the curtain back. <laughs> I pulled the curtain back. This is absolutely true. And there was this guy there. And he was putting on a pair of Levi's on top of a pair of Levi jeans. And there was red stuff all over the changing room. And I thought it was blood. But it was actually, they used to put ink on Levi jeans. Did they do that here as well? Like capsules of ink? If you try and break them off, it just covers the jeans in ink. It was a, it was a deterrent against people who, like this gentleman who was trying to steal jeans. And what he was doing is he was trying to layer jeans on himself and then walk out the shop. <laughs> Except I caught him. Loved it. I remember catching one guy running down the high street. Loved it. I loved bringing people to justice. My dad, who was actually a police chief, is probably rolling his eyes now. going, oh, goodness sake. You know, bringing people to justice. Okay. But. We love it. We love justice. You see, it's ingrained in us because we know that when we do something bad, there should be some retribution. There should be some consequence. That's how we parent. You do this, you don't get this, or you get this. There's a consequence. We know that. It's ingrained in society, apart from when we think about God. But the reality, friends, this is really important. This is where it gets glorious. It's that God is a judge. And it's us who stand in the dock. And He is holding a gavel. I think I have an image for that. And it's us standing in the dock because we are guilty. We have sinned. We have done things wrong. We have committed things wrong. We have omitted to do things. We are sinful. And God is the judge and we are in the dock and we are Condemned. Because he is holy. And then the door opens. And in walks Jesus. And he looks at God the Father, the judge, and says, Look, I will take their punishment. I will stand in the dock. So that they might be innocent. And so our guilt gets transferred onto Jesus. And God the Father slams down the gavel and declares us innocent. Justified. Innocent. Our standing has changed. To be justified is to be declared innocent. Friends, if you know Jesus this morning, if you have become a Christian, your sins are forgiven, you are innocent, your standing has changed. You are no longer condemned. You are are free. You are justified. You are innocent. How are we justified? Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, by Faith in Jesus Christ, not by what we do. If you have an idea that somehow your good works, whatever they might be, are going to allow you to squeeze into heaven because God's going to go, wow, I'm so impressed. If a condemned prisoner who is guilty does good things, it does not cancel out the guilt which he has or she has. That still has to be accounted for. It's by faith, believing in God. And we heard last week how Jesus died and in imputed righteousness, put righteousness, his standing, his, his right standing on us. We are innocent. And what does this mean? What it means is, is when we are justified, our position has changed, our standing has changed with God, we are innocent, and then something amazing happens. And this is perhaps one of the most difficult things for us as Christians to accept. God delights in us. He delights in us. You see, now when God looks at us, He doesn't see the sin that we've committed. He sees His Son, Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want us to dwell on this morning, and as we come to communion later, I want us to understand that when God looks at you, He doesn't look at you with condemnation if you have believed Jesus Christ. He looks at you with delight and love and care and pride. He delights in you. And the first step for us understanding and living out real life is that we need to see what God sees. We need to see what God sees. And friends, this is hard for us because what we do is we see what we see. We hear what other people have said about us. We listen to that inner conversation that rages within us. And we believe it. We lean into it. We speak it. We journal it. We, we, we focus on it. All the time that God is saying, my friend, you are justified. I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. Many of us have no problem seeing God as a judge. We have no problem in seeing Him as a taskmaster. What is ironic is the world only sees God as love therefore I cannot be judged where many Christians only see God as holy that all he wants to do is judge and we forget this he loves you we struggle with this because perhaps you had a father who was the worst possible example of love and care and delight that you could have So when you think of God, the father, you see your dad. Perhaps God is leaning forward in his throne with a large stick or lightning rod ready for you to trip up just so he can say, I told you, I knew you would. Get out of my sight. Because God is not like that. He sees you as his beloved. I remember when my first child was born, I remember holding this beautiful little girl and I remember looking into her big brown eyes and she had this massive, thick black hair like you could plait it when she was born. I'm not even joking. And I remember looking at her and I fell so deeply in love with that little girl. And she'd done nothing. Nothing apart from give my wife a lot of discomfort over the last especially few hours, but especially those nine months. Like, she'd done nothing. And yet I looked at her and I fell instantly in love with her. And every child that I've had, we've looked at them, and you are the same. You've looked at this child, if you are parents, and you've fallen instantly in love with this beautiful baby and they've done nothing but poop and burp and keep you awake all night. And drive you nuts, crying sometimes, but you love them. And then they grow up. And I remember Jack, I told Jack off once, and and he was maybe three. I told him off, and I was like, get to your room. So he went to his room and and decided, okay, fine, you tell me off. I'm going to pee in the corner. So he just peed in the corner of his bedroom. Like not because he was scared, he planned it because he was right in the corner. But I love him. You know, like when they're small, they can't even throw a rugby ball, but I still love them. They can't even talk and say Manchester United, but I still love them. They're doing nothing to deserve my love other than that they are my child. Friends, if me as a dad with all my struggles and issues can love my child as much as that and all my children, how much more can God delight in you? He's gathering angels around. Come look. That one's mine. Yeah, but they, they really had a bad week. They sinned a lot. I know, I still love them. We're going to work on that. Might cause them some pain, but we're going to work on that. Why? Because I love you. In order for us to live an empowered life, we need to see ourselves as the beloved. If God sees us as forgiven, then we are forgiven. Not because we have a good week, but because we are loved by a God who sees His Son when He looks at us. See, what the world does is this. This is the world's equation. He says, the world says this. Your self-worth is based on your performance and other people's opinions. If you work hard and other people like you, then what we think is, is our self-worth increases. Where God, through the cross in Jesus Christ, destroys that equation where you actually find all your self-worth in the fact that you are a loved child of the living God. Your self-worth is there regardless of whether you've had a good week or not. In Hebrews 10, verse 17, it says, I will remember their lawless, their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What does Satan do? Constantly reminds us, how can God love you? How can God love you when you think that way? So what happens, if we go to the slide before, we go back to the equation yeah that's true how can god love me when my performance is so bad how can god love me and we start playing into this lie you see if we can live life in such a way where we can start believing the equation that god loves us because he loves us because he loves us the puritans believe this well why why does god love us because he loves us but why does he love us because he loves you There is no real answer to it other than his heart is leaned towards us. And we believe that. And so when we go into life, it changes the way we act. And so Jesus isn't on the edge because we feel like we're loved and we're the beloved. He's the center of all that we decide to do. Because we want to do what is correct and right and good and godly for the one who loves me. But there's more. Not only does he love us, number three, we are adopted. We have a new identity. Not only are we declared innocent and justified, at the same time, it's very important you understand that these two things happen instantly the second you become a Christian. You don't earn them, it's by faith, instant. Not only that, but God adopts us into his family. There's justification and there's adoption of proof of how accepted and loved we are, he says, look, I love you so much, come into my family. Sarah and I have had the joy of adopting. And adoption is is actually quite a painful thing to go through as well as a wonderful thing to go through. Many of you have either adopted or have uh, known somebody who's adopted. To actually take a child who perhaps has come from a difficult background and to bring them into the family it's a profoundly honoring and loving thing to do. Personally, I believe Christians should be doing that. Fostering and adoption should be part of what we do as Christians. But to bring a child in and say, you were not wanted, but you are now wanted, radically changes their identity. And this is where it gets real every day, where we start seeing ourselves different. Look at this chapter. this beautiful chapter, uh, this verse in Romans chapter 8. Um, It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom? Because we're adopted. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. For us to really understand this verse, we need to understand very quickly what Roman adoption was like. Jewish, uh, the Jewish culture at the time had no, there was no such thing as adoption. But the Romans, what they would do is because they saw the heir and the figurehead of the family as so paramount, they wanted to make sure that that was guarded and protected by adoption. And so if, if there was a, uh, the, the, somebody who was seeking to adopt somebody into their family in the Roman culture would literally take a slave with all their debt and all their bondage and cancel their debt. Now, can you see the spiritual significance? Cancel their debt cancel their bondage and say you are no longer an outsider you will get treated just like me as in the father of the house that their inheritance their their uh their um yeah their inheritance doesn't start in the future it started right then so as somebody who was adopted in the roman culture there's no more fear because they've received the spirit of adoption friends You've been given a spirit of adoption. No more fear of the future. No more fear about what might happen. You're in the family. You are accepted because you're a child of God. You have a future, but you also have a present because you are heirs. But you're not just any old heirs. You are heirs of Jesus Christ. This is a profound promise for us as Christians that we should live in and it should saturate every aspect of our lives. So let's get very practical for a second. If we believe in justification, our standing has changed. If we believe in adoption, that means we're now in the family of God. That when God looks at you, he sees his son Jesus, you are innocent. Now for some of you, I'm just going to be very honest with you, these words are lifeless. You know they are true. You know that's what the Bible says. You know that that is what you believe but you are not living life on the basis of them. They seem impossible to you. So actually for me as pastor, as pastor, with a very spiritual look in my eye, to tell you and say, your parenting decisions should be founded on your belief in Jesus Christ. The way you work should be founded on who you are as a child of God. The way you speak, the way you act, the way you interact, the way you're involved in church, the way you see church... All these things should be founded. Your decisions about your activities as a family, all founded on the Word of God, on who you are, on your identity, on your standing. All that you know to be true, but the practical reality of what that looks like is alien to some of you. And can I say, it's always a struggle. But I want to just finish by explaining something of paramount importance. Sometimes we struggle with accepting and living out this belief. Why? Let me just explain to you by way of an illustration. Let's say you are a, an athlete. Not just somebody who calls themselves an athlete because they, they look at a gym every other day. But somebody who actually goes to the gym every day, works out hard, has a training regimen. You go home and you read about working out. You watch youtube videos about working out you're studying you're in a you're in a a, a, when you go to sometimes you just go visit the gym not to work out just so you can talk to people about working out and then when you get home and you're relaxing you're not just relaxing you're sitting on the couch you're actually playing wee tennis because everything about your life is about working out you start seeing yourself as somebody who is fit you're an athlete and then somebody comes along and says to you oh you don't seem very fit something rises up within you and goes, hang on a second, let me just tell you, have you seen these abs? You kind of go, something inside is like, no, I am fit. You see, you value and believe, listen, you value and believe your identity as being fit because your lifestyle pursues it. Let me say that again. You value And believe your identity. Your identity. Why? In other words, your whole life is geared towards what you value and believe about being fit. Why? Because you pursue it. Everything in your life is geared towards it. So let's change fitness, let's make it business, let's make it family, whatever you want to put in here, you value and believe that you are a business owner or that you are a certain role within a business or a teacher or a doctor or whatever it might be, you value and believe it, you will defend it because your life pursues it, it's not the other way around once you actually start you may have pursued it and then your value and belief what increases you see it becomes your identity let me put something on the screen your life practices write this down Tattoo it on yourself. I don't mind, but you really need to remember this. Your life practices strengthen or weaken. Do we have this slide? Your life practices strengthen or weaken your belief and values. What we do is this. Please listen. What we do is this. We wait until we feel like we're something. We wait for our feelings to change before we pursue so we don't read our Bible, we don't necessarily spend time in prayer, we don't go to church, we're not involved in community group, we don't volunteer, we don't tithe, we don't do any kind of outreach in the city or involved in any kind of missions or anything like that. We don't do any of those things. In other words, our practices are not there. And that affects your belief and values. Your belief and values about yourself and about Christianity and about church go down. And then you get into this cycle. Well, why would you go to church if you don't practice? Your practices strengthen or weaken your belief and values. If our practices were geared towards the very thing that we said was ultimate, then if our practices were geared towards it, our value and belief of that, of Jesus, would increase. And you would go from strength to strength to strength. If your practices do not follow what you say is ultimate, then you will weaken and Satan will have an absolute field day with you because you're exactly where he wants you to be. Uninvolved, unconnected, not studying, not being filled by the Spirit, trying to fit Jesus in, and slowly Jesus just becomes pushed to the edge and becomes another activity once a month. Parents, our kids see our pursuit. They may not immediately pursue it, but they know what your number one pursuit is. And if your number one pursuit is them, they'll pick up on that. They'll know it. The challenge is, is that when this starts going wrong, or there's challenges in this, or if this gets, if it gets, um, if some chaos attaches itself to this, then because our identity is based in this, our life collapses. You see, they watch, and they will pursue what we value most. Maybe not immediately, but they'll never be in doubt when they think of. You, as parents, they're going to go, my mom and dad, at the time, I didn't appreciate it. But man, they were really committed to their church. They were really committed to their community group. They loved Jesus. I may not understand it, but I can't be any doubt of it. They had something that was bigger than them. Would we prefer that to be our business? Is our business going to save us? Our fitness? Because you and I both know... You can eat as much broccoli and spinach as you want. But cancer doesn't seem to avoid the fittest. Chaos in the physical realm does not avoid those people who work out every day. We have to have something bigger. You see, in Romans 8, verse 17, we just read it. The heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ... Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. You see, life sometimes involves suffering. And that which you pursue based on your justification, based on you being in the family, you pursue him because you love him, you fill your life with practices, that when the suffering and the chaos comes, there's a solidity in your life that your children and your grandchildren your friends and your co-workers will lean into and go, there's something different and it's not that they can push out 100 push-ups in a minute. See, the Bible doesn't avoid the fact that life is going to be difficult. But it re-